KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. There's a study out of the Los Alamos National Lab about coronavirus mutations that's getting a lot of attention. Its authors contend that this could impact vaccine development and immune interventions. I wanted to dig into this, so I called Dr. David Weiner. He's director of the Wistar Institute's Vaccine and Immunology Center, where they are working on a COVID-19 vaccine. I wanted to start out by asking you about the study. Scientists said they had discovered 14 mutations of the coronavirus, and the authors said they believe this could affect vaccine development. I'm wondering, have you seen the study, and what is your opinion about that? That's an important question. The study from Betty Corber and others discussed that there was mutations occurring and that there was one particular mutation, N614G, which our lab team, uh, particularly Dan Culp at the Wistar, had been, his lab had been tracking for a while. And basically, most of the mutations observed were at very low frequency. The one that was at a slightly higher frequency was the N614G. That one received a lot of attention that's in the spike protein in an area that's not directly involved with attachment but could affect attachment. And it's increased, I believe, in frequency from about 42% to over 60%. Can you explain to us what that means? First of all, the spike, from what I understand, that spike protein allows it to attach to the cell, right? The human cell that it infects? The spike protein um, is the attachment protein on the virus that allows it to bind to its receptor and get into our cells. ACE2 is its receptor, and that's in the lung and and also in intestines and in other tissues. And so that's what responsible for allowing the virus to go in. So mutations in the spike, we should pay attention to very closely. And so in this particular case, though, let's just start out with the overview. This is not a virus that mutates like HIV, uh, which is very rapid mutation rate. And it's not It doesn't mutate at the same rate as influenza, change at the same rate. So most of the changes, as reported in the paper and as others have been tracking on the web, are very low frequency and likely not to receive the attention of this 614 um, site change. Whether the 614 site changes attachment very much or not is unclear. It did increase in frequency. And I think everything else we can say about it, since there were no experiments, are, are, are at this point subjective. And so it could be that single point mutation might give the virus some advantage. It could be the virus is adapting to humans or getting more comfortable or something, whatever word you want to use. But that doesn't necessarily mean it could be two things. It could mean that's a bad thing or it could mean that's a good thing because viruses frequently like um, develop as they get more adapted to a species. They frequently are less uh, pathogenic, but then conversely, it might increase its spread. So these things have to be watched very closely. But again, I do want to point out the increase is from 40 some odd percent to 60 percent. The reason why the number is clear is because there's so many sequences. So that makes it clear. 
and that is establishing to be more predominant. But remember the other sequences when, when the database was lower. Okay. So that 40 to 60 percent, what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, I think whenever we see a change in a virus that's being selected for or give it some advantage, we wonder about that. And we're concerned, for example, that although this site is not in a direct binding and neutralizing site, it could make the receptor interaction site uh, on the virus that then interacts with the ACE receptor. Um, One prediction is more flexible and therefore makes it easier to bind. But that's, again, speculative because we don't have data, but that is one way to look at it. And so then it would have an easier time getting into cells. This is going to have to be watched. And so anytime there's a change, I think that's important to us. And we're very used to looking at changes in HIV and other and flu and seeing these very dramatic shifts. But again, this virus normally changes slower because it has a proofreading activity, activity to correct errors as part of its genetics. So that also, though, raises the question, there is seemingly some selection for this epitope, this specific change. As far as speculating on vaccines, that has to be determined empirically. As I mentioned, it doesn't really change the surface of the binding site. It really is sort of a region that sort of allows stabilization. Next door is is the prediction. And so whether that would block an antibody that already binds or whether you would need more antibodies that are induced by vaccine, that is unclear. And because it's only change, in my estimation, it's extremely unlikely to affect dramatically T-cell responses, which um, recognize a virus in the context of cellular proteins and destroy the viral factory. So, and it is only one site. So I think um, that really needs to be studied. You mentioned, did I get that right? You said proofreading ability. The virus has proofreading ability. That's correct. The virus has a proofreading ability. It's an RNA virus. It's a larger RNA virus than HIV. For example, it's about three times as large as 30 kilobases. And in order to keep its genetic material from changing very much, it encodes a proofreading during its replication. And so it makes sure not to put in very many errors. And that suggests the virus can't tolerate very many errors. Um, unlike HIV, which makes its living by dramatically changing every replication cycle. Hmm. So then what does that mean, I guess, for the, I don't know if it would be the life of the virus or the, you know, the ability of it to survive if you find, I mean, once you develop a vaccine for it? I think, you know, we do have other vaccines for older types of viruses where the virus changes in a minor fashion, and yet it's still perfectly protected by the new vaccine. And in fact, flu vaccines don't have match pretty well, but there can be a few amino acid changes and still they can work pretty well. So I think we're going to have to study this. I think it's really an important um, paper. I do think, as I mentioned, many groups have been following this mutations and mutations on the spike are plotted all the time now. Uh, In fact, all the mutations in the virus are are plotted regularly. And so these are important issues that need to be followed up on. And I think the only way we can determine how it'll work with vaccines or the antibody therapies that several groups are developing, as we're aware, there are several groups that are developing monoclonal therapies. And then, of course, the more generic um, serum transfer or plasma transfer or gamma globulin transfer studies 
Um, I think more will have to do those studies to really determine how significant this change is. You have to be pretty nimble, don't you? I think that Dr. Corbett's paper really points out that we have to stay vigilant and we have to stay on top of our toes and really pay attention to many, many moving parts and be able to adapt as necessary because we need therapies that are effective very quickly. We need vaccines that are effective and tested in more rapid fashion than any time in history. And so um, we have to really be vigilant. And so these kind of studies are really important for those kind of activities. Last time we spoke was back at the beginning of March, which seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> and um, we spoke you were about the vaccine that you are developing uh, for the coronavirus, COVID-19. Can you give us an update? Where do things stand with that right now? Yeah, well, thank you for asking about that. Um, we're part of the um, Anobio Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations that has funded several of the initial groups that have gone into the clinic. And we were in the clinic with um, that vaccine in just 10 weeks. We went into clinic very soon after talking to you. And the trial started at University of Pennsylvania and in Kansas City. The PI of the trial is at University of Pennsylvania is uh, Dr. Pablo Tebas. And that study is fully enrolled. All of the groups we're going to recruit have already been recruited. There's discussion now about um, expanding that study into additional groups as well as uh, Novio has announced that we will be analyzing the data and likely um, discussing that in June. And there's also the discussions now of pivoting from that first trial into an FC trial, which would start in the summer, an expanded phase two that will allow us to actually test um, how well the vaccine impacts in the field in people who have the risk of being exposed. We're planning on, our focus is on um, initially healthcare workers, first-line responders, et cetera, and uh, individuals that would get a great benefit from having uh, a vaccine that might work right away. So when you said the, the trial right now is fully enrolled, are you, you are in the human stage of the trial, are, are you not? Yes, we enrolled the first uh, 40 subjects in just three weeks. You know, that first study is safety and immunogenicity. And so that uh, study is still um, active and going on as we follow along through the time of the, the study, which is supposed to last several months. But, of course, we're doing the analysis in much quicker time frame in order to turn around. But safety will be followed longer. And we're also now planning on the next phases of this study, both expanding this study to include more groups of individuals, as well as pivoting, which has been announced to focus on moving into efficacy trials to test the ability of the vaccine to actually prevent viral infection in the summer. So what is your then your best call? You said you are moving along pretty rapidly here with vaccine development. And everybody, of course, wants to know, you know, the big question with this is when are we going to have a vaccine? Do you have an idea of when we could when when we could really have one that's fully developed? That's a very um seems like a very straightforward question, and yet it has so many moving parts. So uh, there are several groups. As you know, I think there's now five different groups in clinical trials, and groups like ours and a few others are planning on moving rapidly into efficacy trials. And those efficacy trials, depending on how fast patients get recruited, volunteers get recruited and come into the trial, and then their attack rate in the community, you know, you counsel them to avoid risk, but still there is risk. We are clearly all at risk. That number is not really clear, and so that's going to impact the speed. 
But I guess if you want me to be very uh, affirmational or something, uh, depending on how fast those trials enrolled and uh, in the first, uh, you know, groups of individuals, one can start to see signals, I would say, in the fall. And, and, um, but that's only the first stage, right? What also has to happen is there has to be expanded production available at multiple of these groups all at once because the distribution, let's say we get to this first phase and then there's different ways to go forward after that, we would need larger amounts of product to start vaccinating larger amounts of people right away, not the traditional pathway where that doesn't happen till the end of the trial or towards the end of the trial when you get a much better feeling of all the trials. And so this is sort of a different situation and requires sort of a very intricate planning in a much more rapid and at-risk fashion than before. Um, but even though that is the different about this and we all want something faster, it is much lower risk to do that and spend that extra money up front than it is to actually get to an endpoint, have things that work, let's make believe half of them work and not be able to start distributing them at least in a larger fashion very quickly. I know you said you haven't analyzed, you're going to analyze the data in June, but can you tell me just how are things going? How are things looking at this point with regard to safety? Well, the safety is, you know, being monitored implicitly in the trial, and that's reported constantly to the FDA, for example, by the clinicians. And of course, there is a monitoring board, and if there are issues, then the trial is stopped. So what we know officially is the trial is still ongoing, and so there haven't been any um, significant issues that we would be aware of. Otherwise, we would have already all be aware of that. Well, that's certainly great news. <laughs> I mean, it's good to hear for those of us who aren't, you know, intimately involved in this process because we've heard so much about vaccine development and we know it's really an intricate, difficult, challenging process. Vaccines are just like all aspects of very complicated vaccines are, of course, um, complicated. But I also want to say there's a pathway and, and these groups have been through it before. And um, there are very specific things that make vaccines. Vaccines are where rubber hits the road because it's where technology and people meet. The way I think about it is, you know, we are understand that we can get, you know, packages delivered from India or something that we order something from and it comes to our house. And if it doesn't wind up at our house, we can just type in on the computer and get a tracking record that tells us it was delivered to North Carolina by accident. And then reach out and then they'll reship it to us. And so that the same kind of detail and tracking and everything, not that things are getting lost, but the same type of people should realize that vaccine development, we have ex- exquisite amount of thought and controls and oversight that allows us to try to be as safe as possible to actually have most of our vaccines that, in fact, all of our licensed vaccines are extraordinarily safe. They're essentially safer than water. And we monitor those all the time with all kinds of sophisticated systems. And so I think uh, all of that goes into development of new vaccine, as well as development of new assays and things that give us guidance exactly like um, and, and allow us to fold in new questions, exactly like this Corber paper that just came out, bringing up an issue that should be addressed in the course of vaccine development. I've always been curious, where do you get your volunteers well, there was the volunteers were recruited at the University of Pennsylvania at the Kansas City site by the principal investigators, Dr. Tabels and Dr. Lewis, and they opened the trial and asked for volunteers. And what I understand was the fact that recruited in such fast time tells you there was a lot of interest in being part of the trial. 
We understand that that included people from uh, medical centers as well as associated institutions. It's very. It's, I always found that very interesting. Who would you know volunteer really to be a bit of a guinea pig here? You know, you always have to thank volunteers and trials for their commitment and their support. I think there's an implicit relationship. Of course, the fact that people in the same institution might want to be part of it, I think, talks about the relationship and the feeling people have for each other that way. But I do think we're very indebted to, we all should be very indebted to people who step up and help out in those situations. Right. Because, of course, there's risk involved. I mean, you make it as as safe as you possibly obviously can, but you never know. I think we try to make things as safe as possible. We have models that came across from the past that we use. Um, in addition, the first trials that opened were um, with technologies in itself, like for DNA, for example. We, we've been in thousands of people without any significant adverse events due to a product. So changing part of that platform to in, include the just the spike antigen and um, in a non-live, non-spreading, non-infectious form that's only delivered locally in the arm. These are all kinds of risk management tools, risk mitigation tools. But yes, we have to be very indebted to people who volunteer and become part of medical trials as they do everyone um, a service, a great service. I was reading something on your bio, and I'm just curious about this. I don't That you looked at the immune response to DNA vaccine to the use of cytokine engineering. And the reason it stood out to me is because we've been hearing a lot about these cytokine storms, and that is what makes people really, really ill. And in some cases, fatally, you know, it kills them. And so I'm just wondering if there's... um, if you're if the cytokine engineering that you're talking about here is has any connection to the kind of the cytokine storms that we're hearing about people getting really sick. Well, thank you for looking over the CV. I think the discussion you're talking about there, DNA is a, an information molecule and you can make you can do many different things with it. And you can in this case, we're only delivering information that codes for a synthetic model of one particular piece of the virus, the spike antigen, and the rest, uh, there's nothing else delivered in the information sequence. And it gets taken up locally in the skin cells, particularly of the arm, but it transfects slightly more, but it's all localized in a local injection site in the arm. And that is where this one protein is then produced. And that fools the immune system to thinking there's an infection with a foreign agent which then attacks the spike protein now in our cells. And by doing that, it learns how to make antibodies and killer T cells. The background on DNA itself, DNA uh, delivery, is that it has a very low signaling of multiple different pathways on its own. And in the past, was not very immunogenic. And so there were studies to do different things. But we've now gotten to the point, we also engineer molecules into delivery by DNA. For example, we've delivered, we've engineered now DNA-delivered encoded monoclonals against cytokines, for example, or to induce immune effects in animal models, not for vaccine purpose, but to create drugs and biologics. And the example of why you might want to do that is some biologics are very um, expensive and have very short half-lives in people, and so it limits who can get them. And so, for example, the antibody drug 
Herceptin, which has multiple names, is anti-HER2, is really given to people with excellent health insurance and the richest people in the world, but it's not available for the rest of the world's population. Well, if we can engineer and deliver in these experimental models, excuse me, an antibody that way, uh, encoded by DNA, and as simply, that's a much less expensive platform and a much more stable platform and a much simpler platform. And you could start treating people in um, across the globe, women who have a recurrence of uh, breast cancer, um, a percentage of them this way that currently have no therapy. So that's really what that's about. That's about looking at your toolbox and saying, what other diseases can you take on? What other approaches can you have? Thank you. That I just I was very curious about that. Um, Dr. Weiner, is there anything else you know that I haven't asked you about that you think is important to share? You know, I think this discussion is really important, and I, I think the relationship between all of us and that we're all sort of focusing on trying to move this together and the information is just really important and we will eventually figure out how to get through this together hopefully soon that's it for this episode of kyw in-depth coronavirus for more stories about the coronavirus pandemic or if you just want to know more than what you're hearing on the news right now if you want to go a little deeper if you want to know how this could change your life or your routine then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon. 